Okay, let's turn tonight to 1 Timothy 4.16 as one of our many, one of our many verses. Tonight we'll be starting a brand new series. It will be the most challenging so far, I think. Called Doing and Living Theology. Doing and Living Theology. It'll be abbreviated this way, DLT. Doing and Living Theology. Now this series tonight... I'm going to open with a message called Ground Zero, because this thing is going to explode sort of like an atomic bomb does at Ground Zero, but the effects aren't felt until it expands and fans out. In other words, a lot of what we'll be teaching within this series is all in this message in one sense, in a seed form. Doing and living theology. As a subtitle, be attentive to yourself, which is 1 Timothy 4.16. Be attentive to yourself. Kind of a strange thing to be counseled to do when we're studying about God, be attentive to yourself, take heed to thyself. Once again, new series, Sundays will continue with the doctrine of justification until I'm satisfied that the doctrine is justified, and at least for now, but Wednesdays we begin Doing and Living Theology. This is going to quite probably morph into other series. In other words, we may get into a theological exegesis of passages in Ephesians. And we might even suggest one of those tonight. So let's take a few moments to entrust our spirit into the hands of God. Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Put off our old antiquated self. Put on the new man. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And commit ourselves to remaining attentive to life-giving truth. Father, we're grateful to entertain the many words of Scripture that have the one word, Jesus, as their conveyance. We pray tonight that you will effect in us conversions that bring you glory. Grant us understanding that we may know you and that we may enter into a graced imitation of you and a bearing of your image. We present ourselves to you. We entrust our spirits 
to you, presenting our bodies to you. And we grant this time to you as you've granted it to us. In Christ's name, amen. Universal salvation is a salient doctrine of the scriptures, a a primary doctrine of the scriptures. Instead of using the term universal salvation, however, it's perhaps better, as we have done, to say the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a Christological doctrine. We can even say soteriology is Christology. A necessary aspect of Jesus' saving significance is the universally transformative impact of Jesus' redemptive, reconciling, and rectifying death on the cross, which was followed inexorably by his resurrection from the dead. This we will call the universal impact of the cross of Christ. A word that will come significantly into play in this regard and in our upcoming series is, is the one I've mentioned several times, instauration. With a root word, stauros, for the cross, instauration. Instauration is a one-word descriptor for the impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. However... Instauration is not only descriptive of the universally external transformative impact of the cross of Christ. It is also descriptive of the radically individualistic and internal impact of the cross of Christ. The universally saving significance of Jesus Christ And the saving action of the triune God. For note takers, I'll give you as many abbreviations as I can. The triune God, the Trinity, the triune God. The universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the saving action of the triune God does not rule out the need for individual human conversion. It demands it. This will begin to describe what I call bigger fish to fry. For this reason, we'll be operating under a theological functional specialty. We'll call those theological functional specialties TFS. You'll be familiar with all this language if you're not already. This is really a kind of a theology class. You might be getting it in some seminaries, sort of like this, only a lot different. And that theological functional specialty is called foundations in this series of teachings. By foundations, I mean, or we could say by foundations is meant not so much the external doctrines that are foundational to the Christian faith. Rather, when we speak of foundations, we are talking about internal conversions 
in the students of theology, the doers and the livers of theology. We're talking about foundations as the internal conversions that are foundational in the one who does and who then lives theology. Of particular importance is that which has been called religious conversion, which I much prefer to call a spiritual conversion for reasons I'll explain. I call it a spiritual conversion in the sense that it is a radical transformation in the inmost person, the innermost interiority of the human person. It's called the cardia or heart in one sense, and in another sense, it's called the pneuma, the human spirit, P-N-E-U-M-A. The reason that these are really the same thing in some cases is the heart is the human spirit. And I can, I can say that by this authority in the sense that in Romans 5, 5, we are told that the Holy Spirit, a divine person, pours out the love of God in our hearts. But on the other hand, we are told that the Holy Spirit, a divine person, bears witness with our human spirit that we are the children of God. In one sense, both the pouring out of the love of God in the heart by the Spirit and the bearing of witness by the Holy Spirit to our human spirit are one thing because when the Spirit bears witness to our spirit, it is to tell us that we are the children of God and as such that we are loved completely as personal objects of an unparalleled, unrestricted, unconditional, and otherworldly love. According to Ben F. Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, religious conversion, as he calls it, I call it spiritual because it happens in the inmost being and has the greatest effect. He says religious conversion is the all-pervasive change effected by allotting the habitual primacy in one's life to the love of God. You see very few people in this world and in churches who have done that, who have had that happen so that they have allotted the primacy, the habitual primacy in one's life to the love of God. In addition, Meyer notes that religious conversion is, quote, particularly crucial in matters of theology. In addition to this spiritual conversion, there are moral, intellectual, and psychic conversions, all of which take place in the same subject. And you're the subject, I'm the subject. 
Spiritual conversions occur at the point of judgments of value that we make. And I'll exp- this, all of this is going to be fanned out. This is ground zero. The bomb's blowing up. You don't have the effect yet. Moral conversions occur at the point of judgments that are made by the subject, that's you and me, following reflection and the marshalling of evidence. Intellectual conversions come to pass on the level of our understanding. Psychic conversions, a term coined by R.M. Duran, Robert M. Duran, take effect on the primal level of sensate experience. Our knowledge begins with sensate experience, what we see or hear or recognize in our senses. And then we ask, quits it, what is it? If we're authentic people, we ask, what is it? We don't just have a naive realism that says, I see it and I know it. I know by seeing. We don't know by seeing. We know by questions that result in insights that further go into Reflection, is it really so? Reflection marshals evidence, comes to a judgment, and then judgment goes into deliberation and judgments of value are made. This is what makes an authentic person. This is what makes an able theologian. I know this is all sort of unfamiliar ground, but that's okay. In 1 Timothy 4.16... We have an indispensable piece of advice, not only for the pastor teacher, as exemplified in Timothy in this epistle, Paul the Apostle's most prized protege, but this also applies to all who would be theologians, who would understand and know God, in other words, and that can be, or even should be, all Christians. That piece of advice is this. Take heed means be attentive. Pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. The teaching is objectively the theology that we're about to study. Take heed to yourself. Notice that that's first. For us, right now in this class... This means to be attentive to yourself as the subject who does and who will live theology. The subject has to not only be converted, but has to go through conversion after conversion in order to be approved as a doer of theology, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, as Second Timothy 2.15 puts it. An unconverted theologian, now here's a thesis to wrap your mind around, an unconverted theologian will be deluded. His or her theology will be based on illusions. His or her dedication to these illusions will be sustained as his passion rules over reason. His camaraderie will only be with others who swim together in a pool of illusions. That's the inevitability of doing theology without conversions. 
passionate commitment to false doctrine occurs over reason. See if you remember some of these words, if you've studied Shakespeare or ancient Greek philosophy. To thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. These words were spoken by a character named Polonius to his son in William Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 3. It probably also echoes the philosophy of William Shakespeare himself. The ancient Greek philosopher Pythagoras said this, Man, know thyself, then thou shalt know the universe and God. At least Pythagoras distinguished the universe from God. A differentiation of his consciousness that's escaped the intelligence, I use that term loosely, of many in Western culture today who are prone to call God the universe and the universe God. To the Apostle Paul is ascribed these words. Take heed to yourself and to the teaching, the daskalia, the doctrine, in our case, the theology, the doctrine of God. For us, yourself, there in 1 Timothy 4.16, is you, the doer of theology. And the teaching is the theology that you are to do. And eventually to live by a graced imitation of God and a graced participation in the faithfulness of the man, Christ Jesus. We can also say that salvation in a wider sense is theology. Inasmuch as the salvation of the human race is by the action of the triune God. An uncreated being existing in three distinct persons. I'll say that again. The triune God is an uncreated being, capital B-E-I-N-G in my notes, subsistent or existing, we could say, in three distinct persons. This uncreated being, subsistent in three distinct persons, is as to his essential act, love. As to his essential act, he is love. God is as to his essence, goodness, of such a quality, in fact, we'll use some of the ancient words that are used, quiddity, of such a quiddity, or essence, quiddity. Some of these unfamiliar words I'll write up, they'll be the vocabulary of our quiddity. Comes from the Latin phrase, quid sit. What is it? That's, so, that's the whatness. We, on this side of death, or on this side 
of resurrection, we do not know the quiddity of God. We don't know what God is as to his essence. It's only when we see him and become like him. It's only when at that moment we see him as he is. That's called beatific knowledge. So, this uncreated being, subsistent in three distinct persons, is as to his essential act, love, as to his essence, goodness, but the goodness is of such acquittity as cannot be seen or realized or imagined by humankind outside of the beatific vision. Beatific vision is another word. It means when we see him, 1 John 3, 2. Jesus always saw his father. He had the beatific vision throughout his whole human life as God and as man. So God is as to his act as demonstrable in history in the form of two divine missions. And that's, we'll also be, don't worry about all this. This is all going to be, this is like I said, this is ground zero. The bomb blows up. You don't know what hits you. You don't know the language. You don't know a lot of the stuff. Divine missions. We've done this before. Divine missions. There are one and two. Divine mission one, the mission of the son. Divine mission two, the mission of the Holy Spirit. These are, Expressions of God himself that are demonstrable in history. And so, God is as to his act as demonstrable in history in the form of two divine missions, love. God is love as to his act as demonstrated in two divine missions in history. The goal of doing theology is living theology by a graced imitation of God. Now, an imitator is M-I-M, Ada, T, Ada, S, Mimetes. Mimetes, M-E-I-M-E-T-E-S, if you're doing it in the English. An imitator is simply one who does what others do. First, since it is absolutely impossible and outside of the human capacity for human beings to whom this command is addressed to do what God does, the termed graced Imitation is appropriate for the imitation of God by a human person or persons. Second, the one who is imitated is our Father in the heavens who loves perfectly. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48. So when we talk about imitation, graced imitation, G-R-A-C-E-D, imitation, The command, the one who is imitated is our Heavenly Father who loves perfectly. The command by Jesus that his followers be perfect as our Father in the heavens is perfect refers to a perfection of love. 
which occurs as a graced imitation of God. Now, graced imitation means that what is brought about in Jesus' followers, you and me, is the very love of God by the Holy Spirit who pours out God's own love in our hearts, our most interior being, where in the most interior part of our being, we become aware that we are the objects of an unparalleled, unrestricted, unconditional, and otherworldly love. Now we are that, but we forget if we aren't constantly viewing the evidence of it in the scriptures, the importance of the word. Graced imitation means that what occurs through keeping the word, 1 John 2, 5, also known as in other passages, the kerygma, that is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery, Romans 16, 25. Now let's turn briefly to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, where we get scriptural Affirmation of the things I've told you so far. Ephesians 5.1 simply says in the Greek, Genesta un mimetai tutheu hos tekna agapeta. I'll give you the English. Become imitators of God as beloved children. The sense of that is become imitators of God As beloved children imitate their fathers is the idea. The imitation is of God the Father. Matthew 5.48. Don't, you don't have to turn there. I'm just giving you verses that line up with this. Be perfect as your father in the heavens is perfect. These both are saying similar things. Become imitators of God as beloved children as children imitate their fathers, their beloved fathers. Unfortunately, we live in a time when children imitate their abusive fathers and hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. But we are imitators of a father who has loved us to the degree of infinity by giving his only son. So be perfect as your father in the heavens is perfect, says Jesus in Matthew 5.48. In the context, he's saying, don't just greet or salute or say hello or wish well those in your own little circle, your own little periphery, your own little clique. But not only that, Go so far as to love your enemies. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Or 1 John 2, 5. The love of God is authentically perfected through the one who keeps the word. Constant contact with the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of a mystery, is necessary. Constant conversions are necessary. Human authenticity is not a permanent achievement in this life. Constant conversion 
which means, in many cases, deeper and deeper repentance for sins that often grip us. Deeper and deeper godly sorrow, which affects real repentance. Not just talking about a flight from reality and a mechanic of rebound. We're talking about a depth of repentance that actually puts off the old person. Constant conversions. Authenticity. Human authenticity is not a permanent achievement in this life, but there are those who attain this good and seem to be stable in it. Those are the kind of people you want to be around. And that's why, as one person says, authenticity doesn't happen other than by one torch lighting another. The torch being the person and authenticity lighting the torch. That's what happened with Jesus in the twelve. And that's why we meet together and we are with other believers when possible. So, that's not to say that all believers are authentic. I could never say I'm an authentic person because authenticity is not a permanent achievement. There are moments when we have it. It's, it is not Objectivity, we're incapable of perfect objectivity. Only God has unconditioned objectivity. We have a tainted objectivity because we have backgrounds. We have handicaps in our mentality. We have environmental handicaps in our past. We have lots of things that keep us from being perfectly objective. The best we can be is authentically subjective. And by being an authentic subject, we'll be able to study theology and get a true theology that results in a grace imitation of God. Later in Ephesians, 5.21 to be exact, we have the command that we submit to one another in the worshipful respect of Christ. Submit to one another in the worshipful respect of Christ. This is a graced imitation of the triune God in which there is an ineffable fellowship, an indescribably wonderful fellowship of three co-equal divine persons. Submitting to one another then is an imitation socially and spiritually fellowshipping, an imitation of what's going on in the three persons in an ineffable fellowship of three co-equal uncreated divine persons. A fellowship of divine and human persons is what we've been called to. God is faithful who called us into fellowship with his son. A fellowship of divine and human persons is also what evil is transformed into by instauration. The evil is tra- that the cross transforms. Instauration, the effect of the cross, transforms evil into a supreme good. And that supreme good into which evil is transformed by the law of the cross is a fellowship of divine and human persons. 
through the law of the cross. It's through what Bernard Lonergan called the law of the cross, the just and mysterious law of the cross, that which Jürgen Moltmann called the theology of the cross, that which Martin Luther called theologica crucis, and that which the apostle called the word of the cross, and which we will refer to as instauration a universally redemptive divine action and a divine action performed in individual human beings. In the doing and living of theology, we will engage in two stages of theology. The first is the stage in which we necessarily traffic in the work of others. And you've seen me quote many, many others over the course of the past 40 years. You don't study theology without a collaboration with other theologians. And you have to determine in your own subjective authenticity, hopefully it's working, who is an authentic theologian and who is committed to an illusion and whose passion rules over reason. But the first stage in which we traffic in the findings and insights of others, the second stage of theology is when we stand on our own two feet. The goal of doing theology is living theology. It is human beings bearing the image of God, imago dei, as the Latin puts it, imago dei, bearing the image of God, and Christ is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4. Living theology is human persons bearing the image of God in a more and more accurate imitatio or imitation of God. That's what it is. That's what living theology is. Living theology is human persons bearing or carrying or manifesting the image of God, Christ, in a more and more accurate imitation of God. These words are related deliberately. Imago Dei, imitatio Dei, bearing the image of God unto an imitation of God. Again, it's always a graced imitation. It's not, what would Jesus do, so let me do it. That's the exact opposite of what we mean by a graced imitation, which is caused by a divine action in a human person. An authentic person is not one who says, I got to be me. Authenticity is not a matter of inattentive, unintelligent, unreasonable, irresponsible, and unloving self-assertion. Rather, human authenticity is the result of elevating grace that leads to self-transcendence by constant conversion, including a moral conversion and a spiritual transformation from narcissistic self-assertion 
to a self-transcending love. You didn't think you'd get that in theology, did you? That's exactly. If you're going to do theology, you've got to be an authentic subject doing it. Conversions are demanded. There are people who hate. There are people who are bitter. There are people who don't forgive themselves for their pasts. There are people who live in guilt, in fear, in crippling anxiety. Elevating grace lifts them out of that and makes them authentic subjects whose attentiveness is always directed toward the scriptures which reveal the true God. An authentic person is one in whom the love of God is perfected. Let's just say it that way. Such a person as an imitator of God, imitatio dei, expresses his or her truly human being as a bearer of the image of God. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.4, Christ the image of God, goes into 2 Corinthians 4.10. We always carry around in our bodies the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be manifested in our mortal bodies. It's quite extraordinary. The image of God is Christ. So when God says, let us make man or mankind or humankind, men and women, in the image of, in our own image, they're talking about let's make men and women be in Christ. Bear our image by carrying Christ in the womb of their soul. Those who bear the image of God are carriers of Christ. Carrying the dying of Jesus around with them always, they manifest the life of Jesus to others. As carriers of disease can be contagious, Carriers of Christ can also be contagious. Authenticity happens when one torch, one person, lights another torch by contact. Nothing greater can happen to us in this life than contacting Jesus Christ, who not only is an authentic person, but is both a divinely authentic person and a divinely authentic human being permanently authentic human being. I am the truth, he said. So Christ Jesus is the supreme exemplar of the love of God. For this reason, the scripture that says, become imitators of God, still in Ephesians 5, become imitators of God as beloved children imitate their fathers. That's the sense of that passage. The same verse, that same thought goes on to verse 2 of Ephesians, where it says, and go about in love. Go about your life in love, just as Christ loved us and handed himself over for us, a slaughtered sacrifice to God with a pleasing fragrance. Ephesians 5.2. This mandate of mimesis is also preceded by, in Ephesians 4.32, be kind and benevolent to one another, tenderhearted, 
freely forgiving each other. Now, when you say forgive each other, it's because somebody wronged you. You don't just forgive someone who doesn't require forgiveness. God forgave us for Christ's sake because we needed forgiveness, not because we didn't do anything wrong. Freely forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32. Now, God forgave us in Christ at the same moment When Jesus said, Father, forgive them. God forgave us in Christ at the same moment when he reconciled the world to himself in Christ. To be perfect as our Father in the heavens is perfect then is to freely forgive those who have wronged us. This is an indispensable operation of love. Forgiveness is an affirmation, we'll even say a confirmation of love. Forgiveness is the proof of its presence. Jesus said to the Pharisees and the men who decided they wanted to kill him, he said, I know you, there is no love of God in you. So the cure would be for you to have the love of God in yourselves. Obviously that happens. As John 5.34 says, I'm saying all these things he said to those about to kill him that I may save you, that you'd be saved. Again, the indispensable operation of love is forgiveness. It is the proof of its presence, the evidence that the love of God is in a person's innermost being. The kingdom of God does not come without forgiveness. Again, a person is authentic or we'll say perfect, not in the sense of a final moral perfection in this life, but in that they love fully and love completely. They live in a dynamic state of love through conversions that have occurred in them on five levels of consciousness. We'll get to them. Divine philanthropy in Titus 3.4, God's unrestricted love of humanity, even his passionate philanthropy, is awakened and sustained in human persons. By the gift of God's own love, which is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who was given to us by the Father and the Son. This is what makes a person authentic. It is what makes persons, plural, in interpersonal communication and communion with each other, authentic. Human persons are authentic only by a graced imitation of divine persons, of which there are three in a being called the triune God. In the uncreated being whom we call God, there are three distinct persons who eternally exist 
in the ineffable, and when I say ineffable, I mean indescribably wonderful rapport of love as co-equals. Authentic interpersonal relationships among human beings are graced imitations of the interpersonal fellowship of love between the three persons of the being we call God. According to certain invaluable and unconditional promises made by God, human beings become partakers of the divine nature, says 2 Peter 1.4. This means that human beings are granted a created participation in the uncreated life and love of God. This participation is brought about by none other than the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion that the Holy Spirit makes effective in and among us. For the theology of the divine persons, relations, processions, and missions, all of these are coming into doing and living theology. Four, let's just give you four more vocabulary words. Divine missions, one and two. Divine processions, one and two. Divine processions. Divine relations, One through four. There are four divine relations. Our imitation of God is an imitation of two out of these four divine relations. We'll see this. Then there are divine, we'll just put it this way, divine persons, three. Now, credit where credit is due, theology stage one. For the theology of the divine persons, relations, processions, and missions, I am both consciously and no doubt subconsciously, deeply subconsciously, indebted to what is called the psychological analogy. Call it PA like Pennsylvania, only P period, A period. Psychological analogy. I'm indebted to the psychological analogy that was deployed by Bernard Lonergan, especially in these books, if you desire to get them, The Triune God, colon, Systematics, and The Triune God, colon, Doctrines. The psychological analogy is also revived, enhanced, and perfected in Robert M. Duran's The Trinity in History, Volumes 1 and 2. These are all things I've been studying in secret as I've been doing Romans. The third volume of the Trinity in History by Duran is eagerly awaited by yours truly, and it will be called The Redemption of History. Even more fundamental is my debt to Lonergan for his cognitional theory that was elaborated in the book Insight, the impossible book Insight. And elsewhere in his writings, also elaborated and enhanced by other scholars, including Ben F. Meyer, who I'm presently reading on critical realism, Robert M. Duran, and Frederick Crow, whose famous book, Christ in History, was rooted in Ephesians 1.10. Lonergan's cognitional theory, in my view, 
is a permanent contribution to the doing and living of theology. And that's where we, again, wonder gives way to inquiry, inquiry to answers or understanding called insight. Insight then asks, onset, is it true? Reflection, marshalling of evidence, and then coming to a virtually unconditioned judgment. And when you come to the unconditioned judgment, you further deliberate and determine and maybe come up with one like Paul. I determined that since one died for all, then all died. Therefore, the love of Christ now overtakes me, rules me. Quite an astounding thing. That cognitional theory took me several years to understand, and I still don't get it completely. But even as I stand on my own two feet and bring forth my own insights and convictions, as you do and as you will, in doing and living theology, I'm always aware of the profound influence that these and other theologians, ancient, modern, and current, have had on me. I'll always draw on the contributions made to theology by theologians from Origen and Gregory Nyssa to Jürgen Moltmann and J. Lewis Martin and from Aquinas to Duran. But there is this second stage of doing theology where the theologian stands on his or her own two feet and makes his or her own proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the divine disclosure of a mystery and does so in demonstration in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by proclamation by lips only, but by proclamation by life and living. Now, we have time for this. I'm, I told you this is ground zero, so it's almost everything wrapped up in seed form where we're going in many messages. Persons. What is a person? Person or persons, according to Augustine, he was cute about it. He said, a person is what there are three of in the being we call God. That's, pretty, that's actually pretty witty, pretty good. Person applies to both divine and human subsisters or people who subsist or exist. To subsist or to exist or to be. A, let's just call it, this, I looked it up in the dictionary, it's actually in there, a subsister, S-U-B-S-I-S-T-E-R. That's not a diminutive for sister, it's a subsister, is a being with substantial existence. A person as a distinct subsister or subject, better call it subject, a person is a distinct subject in a spiritual nature. There are three distinct subjects in the uncreated being we call God. There are four identifiable relations within the three distinct persons of the triune God. There are two internal, eternal, and internal, internal and eternal divine processions in God. There are two divine missions which are the divine processions with an external direction and end or an ultimate overriding goal. The overriding goal or end of God's determined intent is not merely creation, but a new creation of all things. 
We will attend to this in some detail. Authentic human living, then, is an imitation not only generally of God, the being, but specifically of two of the four divine relations in God. The authentic human person is the person in imitatio dei, in imitation of God. We will attend to this in some detail. Not tonight. The four divine relations are these, paternity, filiation, active and passive spiration. Paternity defines the father, filiation, the son. Active and passive spiration, the eternal breathing by the father and the son of the spirit. The spirit is actively, eternally breathed. This is all an analogy, and it must be imperfect. There is no perfect analogy for God because it would be God. So we have to labor on imperfect analogy. The best one I've seen in 47 years of study is the psychological analogy. We'll enhance it a bit. Paternity describes the father as the begetter of Jesus Christ. Filiation is the son begotten of the father eternally. Active spiration is the act of father and son in eternally breathing. Passive spiration is the act of the spirit in being breathed eternally from the father. The divine processions, on the other hand, are two. First, the eternal begetting of God the son by God the father, who is the unbegotten begetter. The second is the eternal spiration, or the breathing forth of God the Holy Spirit, by God the Father, and God the Son. Illustrated by when Jesus breathed to his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit following his resurrection. Spiration, then. Probably won't find it in the dictionary. Your spell checker will go crazy. It's a theological term. It must also be borne in mind, again, this is important, that the PA, the psychological analogy... As all analogies from nature to the divine is an imperfect analogy. God cannot be known in this life by humans as he is in his essence. No man has ever seen him in his essence and lived through it. Which implies that when you die, you see him in his essence. That knowledge is called beatific, B-E-A-T-I-F-I-C, beatific, and will only be had when we see him as he is in his essence. And when we know as we are all known, then we shall know as we are known. That's beatific knowledge. Look forward to it. We can know God as to his identity, his name, Yahweh, I am that I am, his self-existence. We can know him as to his acts and his works in history. The divine missions are two. They involve God's acts in history. They are the divine processions. The divine missions are the divine processions. And they are the divine relations. In fact, they are the divine persons 
with respect to a created divine objective. That objective, which we find in Ephesians 1.9, is the mystery of God's intention, the objective of God's will, is not just creation, but the making new of all things, the making new and permanent and ever transformable of all things in Christ Jesus. And the final universal, one more word to write up here, then we'll close, perichoresis, God's intention for human history is perichoresis, perichoresis. Where are you? Let's do it here. P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S, which is a mutual interpenetration of God with all things. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 describes it as God being all in all. Again, the divine missions are the divine processions and the divine relations and the divine persons only with respect to a created divine objective, which is not just creation, but the making new of all things in Christ Jesus and the final universal mutual interpenetration of God and all things. Ground zero, lesson one, doing and living theology, done. Thank you, Father, for challenging us beyond where we were before. Thank you for putting inside our soul tonight, if not a conversion, at least an anticipation of many conversions. For each conversion brings us closer to authenticity. And the closer we are to authenticity, the more we imitate the authentic one, the one who said, I am the truth. And so, Father, let this be an exercise in what Paul called gazing as into a glass at the glory of the Lord and being transformed from one degree of glory, from one conversion to the next into that image of the Lord. Let it be so. Father, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.